morning, everybody. Yes, it is close to Christmas, and I am very excited to see you all. This is our last study of 2021, and so you have really made it to year end. And so we're going to have a little Christmas break, and then we're going to be back together on January 12th. And so Bub has put that in writing in our emails. So if you do not get our emails, then make sure you check the website, stmichael.org slash RBS, Rector's Bible Study, just to confirm, do not show up here on the 5th because that will be sad. It's January 12th is when we're going to be back together. And you do not have a schedule of the spring because I just haven't finished it yet. Um, and so my apologies, it will be finished. You will have at least a week's notice before January 12th as to how we will proceed. Next spring, it gets a bit wonky. The fall is pretty easy because we just kind of plow right on through Exodus. That's straightforward. The spring, we start jumping around because we have a little Exodus, a little Leviticus, a little Numbers, and I'm trying to make sure that the arc of the story that we do in the spring makes sense. And I probably just have to resign myself to where we're going to go through February and I'm going to decide something wasn't right about what I did and we're just going to make a change and that everyone will be just fine with that. But it's frustrating me because I want it to be right the first time. And so we're going to get it to you, no worries. Um, but we're going to finish today with essentially setting up the Israelites in the wilderness so that they are kind of in good shape. And then we're going to shift. And when we get into 2022, starting in January, on January 12th, we're really going to move into the whole establishment of Judaism. They're going to get to Mount Sinai. They're going to receive the Ten Commandments. They're going to begin building their religious identity, not just their cultural identity. And that's going to be very important for us because we're setting ourselves up for next school year. So next fall, as we shift into the kingdom period, much of the way in which Saul, David, and Solomon create their own identity of who Israel should be or can be is rooted in this commandment, covenantal identity of Moses. And so we're really building a house. We've got layer one here with Moses, then we're gonna get David and Solomon before we hit Jesus. And all of that should build on itself. And so today we're finishing up really the actual exit of Egypt, really landing in the wilderness safe from the Egyptians. And there's a shift into 2022 where the Israelites are beginning to own their identity that will ultimately become religious and not just cultural. And so a reminder, I like questions and would love questions online as well. If you're watching on one of our media platforms, would love to see your questions. And as we go into the break, we do have a few weeks off. And if you want to go back and catch up on anything, podcasts are available. We've got now four plus years of lessons backed up. I went to the podcast the other day to see what's there. And it's something like 150 lessons or something. So if you can just drown in some Bible study, you would love it. Um, and so would love for you also to think about as you see people over this Christmas holiday, see if somebody wants to come with you in the spring. Because we are, I mean... I really want to say to you, let's get back together in person, but of course, it seems like the never-ending pandemic. It's like the song that never ends. And so hopefully we can still be here together and we can keep growing in our physical presence in 2022. And so bringing a friend is a great idea. Let's start with a prayer and we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. 
God, we thank you for bringing us together today, here in this place and wherever we are. We ask that you open up our hearts and minds and make space for your spirit to fill us up. As we move into this very busy time of year, help us to remain mindful, mindful of you, the gift of your son, Jesus, the way in which we are called to be transformed and to become your love in the world. Be with all those we hold in our hearts and in our minds who need your healing touch today. Be with them, those who care for them. Lift them up with your presence and give them your peace. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, so our lesson today is really just two parts, nice and easy. We're going to start with chapter 16, go into chapter 17. Part one is going to be bread from heaven. Part two, water from the rock. And so let's just jump right on in with bread from heaven, chapter 16, verse 1. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elam, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And we'll pause. I'm glad you laugh. It's ridiculous. Okay, so the people are complaining again. Geographically, just a note, they came out of Cairo, right, into what I've been calling incorporated Egypt. They kind of walked through and they got to that border town that was essentially at the Red Sea. They crossed the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army was destroyed. They are now continuing to move east into the Sinai Peninsula. So they are traveling to Sinai. As we see here, they're in the wilderness of Sin. That's quite dramatic, isn't it? And they're between Elam, which was essentially that border town, and Sinai, where they will spend a good amount of time. Moses will go up the mountain, will receive the Ten Commandments, and all of those good things. That's where we're going to get the golden calf and the Ark of the Covenant, and it's very exciting. We are essentially getting there. So physically, they are slowly moving east into Sinai, and they have stopped in this wilderness area. I do want to note, wilderness of sin is not some poetic way of saying they're being bad. It's actually just a place. It's a slightly different way of using that word. So we're not talking about like the place where they will sin. It's simply the name of the place. However, they are once again complaining against God. And so it is ridiculous in hindsight that they just seem to lose their faithfulness every few days. It's been a bit, but not a long time, since they have come to this place. So we're talking about, it's not been hours or days, it's been weeks, but it's only been weeks. So it's not a lot of time for them to have corporately forgotten that not only did God provide the plagues that got them out of Egypt, God guided them away from the Egyptians. God saved them through the sea from the Egyptian army. God also gave them water to drink when they were thirsty. I mean, many things have happened up to this point. Now they are hungry, and it does seem as if the storyteller wants to emphasize again 
their lack of faithfulness. God has said over and over again, I've got you. You will get what you need. And yet when they come to any point of discomfort or inconvenience, they immediately start to rail against Moses and then, of course, against God. But God has a plan. So let's keep going. Jump to verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites and say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you needs, an omer to a person, according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. The Israelites did so, some gathering more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, those who gathered much had nothing left over, and those who gathered little had no storage. They gathered as much as each of them needed. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it as much as each needed. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. And we'll pause there. Let's have a... Yes. Oh, you beat me to it. Okay, I said, I, I literally have in my notes right here, let's get a technical things first. Okay, so story aside, we're going to have a little technical moment. What is an omer? I had no idea. Omer, well, I remember looking this up probably 20 years ago. And so an omer is a measurement of weight. It's dry volume. So it's an amount of stuff, like you would measure flour or oats or something like that. And an omer is about one to two liters dry volume. So more than I thought, but not a ton. One omer, here's what I think is hilarious. One omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Okay, is that helpful? An ephah, you ready for this? An ephah is two-thirds of a bushel, which is apparently a certain amount. I had no idea. I thought a bushel was kind of like a bag or something like that. No, apparently a bushel is an actual amount of weight that people measure, and you can tell who's never been a farmer. And so essentially an omer is a small amount of what would be a large kind of bushel. So it's one-tenth of two-thirds of a bushel. Essentially a liter or two. So that's, I, I get you, Betsy, one second. So a liter or two, that's not gigantic, but if you think about, say, you know, a two-liter bottle of soda or something like that, if you filled that up with essentially dry bread-style stuff, that's not a small amount of food. I mean, that's not something you would sit down and eat at once. So conceptually, could that, if you had essentially a loaf of bread, would that be enough for you to feel satiated for one whole day? I think probably certainly. Now, it's not perhaps the ultimate in Epicurean experience, 
but will it keep you full and keep you alive and keep you strong enough to walk or move or work? Certainly. Betsy? Well, I'm just, I'm, in my translation, it says it's about two quarts. Two quarts, yes. Right, so I, I saw it as between two to four quarts or one to two liters. Four quarts is definitely more than two liters. And so I'm thinking it's probably more like two to three quarts or one, one and a half liters, something about that much. So when you think about, that's what, maybe two thirds the kind of a loaf of sliced bread or so. It's not a gigantic amount, but it's enough, right? I mean, we all, I'll speak for my, I will use I language. I definitely eat more than I need to eat. I, I do not only eat to live. I definitely live to eat, if you could not tell. And so I think most of us don't ration for energy only. You know, most of us eat as part of kind of enjoying ourselves. This is definitely much more a utilitarian style of eating. They're not pleasure eating around the fireplace. This is meant to give them energy to do the work they need to get going through the wilderness to actually get to Sinai, and it is what they need. And that is perhaps the key to this particular passage. We're not talking about God providing what they want. We're talking about God providing what they need. We don't necessarily like this kind of thing because we tend to like what we want. Most of us live in a sort of lifestyle where kind of if we want a thing, we kind of go get that thing. Most of us don't live with the insecurity or the lack of not being able to kind of do the small things we wish to do. God here in this moment is saying to the Israelites, you're going to get what you need. Do not worry about your needs. I will meet your needs. It may not be exactly what you want, when you want it, how you want it, but what you need, you will get. And what is very interesting about the way that this experience is detailed is that God provides what they need day to day. That's very key. How many of us would feel so insecure if we only got what we needed the day we needed it. Man, I don't know about you, but I think most of the people I know would not be able to sleep at night if they had nothing left for the next day. Even if God said, I'm gonna provide for you. And it could be days, weeks, months of getting what you need every day, but if you only have what you need the day you need it, that's just, it's so foreign to the way that we live. We like to save and plan and prepare, and the idea that we'll just wake up and get what we need has a level of insecurity to it that is hard for us to even fathom. And so I sympathize with the Israelites. It, it is easy for us to look back and say, they got everything they need. We, I don't think, could live like that. At least it would take a long time to get used to it. We would have to, in a sense, learn to trust God very deeply. And how funny is that? For us to look at something like this, a story like this, and say, we'd have to learn how to trust God that way. It would be nice to say, we do trust God that way. I can tell you, at least for me, I don't think I would just ease into this lifestyle without any problems. 
I would worry and I would wonder and I would feel a bit insecure. I'd probably sleep at night. Nicole would definitely tell you that I would have no trouble sleeping. Um, but still, that general concern that are we really gonna have what we need tomorrow? That's something that we really don't wrestle with in our lives today. We like for things to be tangible. We like to know what is coming. We like to feel that security. And the Israelites are in this moment of true, deep dependence on God. It's very hard. Any questions about that before we keep going in this section? There's lots about bread. All right, let's keep going. Verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, two omers apiece, when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake, and boil what you want to boil, and all that is left over put aside and keep until morning. So they put it aside until morning, as Moses commanded them. And it did not become foul, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today. For, tomorrow, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, and they found none. The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you food for two days. Each of you stay where you are. Do not leave your place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. We'll pause there. Just beyond this, the next verse says, The house of Israel called it manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. I just wanted to have named manna. We hadn't actually gotten to its name. It's not that important, but this is manna from heaven. This is essentially the manna that we talk about, either poetically or tangibly, is this flaky white stuff. And I'll tell you what, when they describe it in verse 31, as wafers, like wafers made with honey. That sounds good to me. That's not bad. Here we have this idea of Sabbath. Sabbath is a crucial idea in the Old Testament. We hear God resting on the seventh day at creation. Now, as God is renewing the identity with humanity, there is this explicit seventh day of rest. God has given the people what they need, water and manna, and if they collect more than they need for that one day, it will spoil by the next day, except when they collect on the sixth day for the seventh. Isn't that interesting? There is a very, very intentional way of preparing for the Sabbath, and that's what I want to hit mostly here. We get the concept of Sabbath. Many of us don't do it, but we understand it. We know that the seventh day is supposed to be a day of rest, a day of reflection, a day spent with God. That's the whole idea of what happens on a Sunday. That is our Sabbath day. But God forbid any of us really ever take a rest. I mean, those of us who are, in a sense, hustling at work, raising children, would simply say there's not enough time. And so a Sabbath has gone away. Even when I became, when I started doing youth ministry almost 20 years ago, Sundays were still mostly kind of off limits. 
you would get the occasional soccer tournament on a Sunday afternoon, but even that was kind of rare. Well, fast forward less than 20 years, and there, there are practices and games and tournaments beginning at dawn on Sunday mornings everywhere for every sport all over the place. Even in a very highly churched area like Texas, Sundays are not off limits anymore. It is harder and harder to actually take a Sabbath. Taking a Sabbath is important, and we see that it's important to God in this story. But preparing for a Sabbath is actually even more difficult. I would venture a guess that many of us find at least moments of rest, even if we don't have one day a week of rest. But how many of us actually prepare to rest well? That's probably a very odd thing. Here we are having, God is instructing the people to prepare for the rest. So it's not just that they're not going to feel hunger on the seventh day so they can rest. No, God's saying you collect twice as much as you need on day six, so that come day seven, when there is nothing out there for you to gather, you can have a proper rest. You do not work. Now, many of us know from Jewish friends or maybe from our own family background that the Sabbath or the Shabbat is a day for some, especially conservative Jews, that is critically important. I have two stories for you. So have I told you all before that I used to, for a, for a hot second, I sold kitchen appliances at Sears? Have I told you all that? Um, I was good at selling kitchen appliances because I did not sell appliances, I sold a vision. Um, anyway, so I can remember learning about the appliances and there were Sabbath settings on ovens. Do you know this? I had never heard of this. But on electric ovens, you know what? I don't know if they had this on gas ovens, but on electric ovens, they had Sabbath settings, which essentially meant you could turn the oven on and it would stay on for 24 hours because there are these interesting Jewish tweaks to laws where if you, you can put food in the oven, but you can't prepare the food that you're putting in an oven, you can't turn the oven on. Okay. So if you prepare a casserole the day before the Sabbath, you can put the casserole in the oven if it's already hot, but you can't have like mixed the casserole, nor can you turn the oven on, but you can take the thing you've already prepared into the oven that you've already turned on and make it hot, whatever. So that's the kind of tweak of the Sabbath that has happened in modern day, but it's all based on this idea that you have to prepare for a day when you can actually rest. There is another thing too, when we first moved to Memphis, we rented a house for a year in the wire. Any of you ever heard of this? Okay, so have I said this before? It, has it been years? Okay, so in some conservative Jewish communities, the idea of not working has actually has some functional problems with it. You can't travel, you can't, you can't drive a car, you can't do stuff like that, but you're supposed to worship, so you have to kind of get to worship, but you can't get to worship in certain ways, and it mostly has to be on foot. And if you're at the synagogue or the temple, 
There are certain working things you can do that you can't do if you're at home because it's kind of a sacred space. And so then people started to say things like, okay, so if you look around this space, we're, we're in the chapel, good. We could do specific kinds of work in this chapel because it's part of worship. Could we do work in the sacristy, even though it's not the chapel, because it's also part of worship? Eh, the answer is probably yes, right? It's just right there, it's next door. Well, what if we wanted to do something in the kitchen that's down the hall and downstairs, but it was actually still connected? So as you can see, it got a little bigger and bigger and bigger. Could we do a little bit of the special work in the yard of the synagogue or the temple? Probably. Well, what if I just lived down the street? Could I do a little bit of stuff over there? Because, okay, so what actually happened over time is a physical wire was set around a particular geographic area that allowed for certain kinds of special sacred work to be done on the Sabbath day. And so if you were a conservative Jew, you wanted to live in the wire in order to kind of get exceptions on the Sabbath in your home. And so talk about maintaining good housing value. If you go buy a house in the wire, it will always sell nice and high because Jews really want to be there because they kind of have exceptions for some of the Sabbath limitations. The flip side of that is there are no Christmas lights in that area. So, okay, so that is kind of the general. Yes, Dave. So the question is where a sabbatical connects to a Sabbath, and it's the same root word. I cannot tell you where the concept of sabbatical came from, um, but it is similar in concept, just at a larger scale. A Sabbath is that regular rest. A sabbatical is a single moment in time that you prepare for in order to actually rest for an extended period of time. I don't know if you all have seen this, but one of the things I say to the staff here is when you, it's better, studies show, it is better to take fewer, longer breaks or vacations than many small ones. So rather than taking a day here, a day here, a day here, actually take one week because it takes 48 to 72 hours for you to actually relax out of your work, to be able to rest well, and it takes about 48 hours, people begin to think about re-entry about 48 hours before it happens. So if you don't actually have more than four or five days off at once, you don't really get a genuine break, that mental and emotional break and rest. And so a week or more is actually really healthy because at least you have a few days there in the middle where you've actually come out of work before you begin thinking about going back into work. And so sabbatical is essentially really taking a break and letting all of that go away. This is hard stuff. Our culture, I mean, let's be honest, America was essentially rooted in this Puritan work ethic, right? We've got that bootstrap kind of, you know, hustle mentality of what we do. And so actually resting with intention, 
can often feel lazy or too luxurious or wasteful or you name it, whatever word you want to use. We've essentially created a system in which, you know, that kind of stuff is not valued. And part of what we're seeing in this story is that the value of that break is critical. And we're called by God, not just psychology or medicine or anything like that. God's calling us to that kind of break. But it's not just doing nothing. There's intention to the rest. And we have to actually prepare for that rest to actually be the gift God intends it to be. All right, so we'll take a quick break right there. And I'd love any questions or thoughts that you have, but I'm going to actually ask Cedric if you're still getting sound on the stream, because I'm seeing lots of flashing things in front of me. So, <laughs> questions or thoughts based on the idea of food and Sabbath and all that good stuff? Um, is the wire in every neighborhood. So first off, it is a, it's only conservative Jews. And genuinely speaking, there is, there aren't a lot of conservative Jews. Um, it, is, it is not the majority of Jewish people. Most of the Jews in this country, I should say in America, in America, most Jewish people are really progressive. And so conservative communities if you, there are some in Dallas, and what you likely know, if you know anything about those conservative communities, is that geographically speaking, they're, they're a very small footprint. Because when it comes time to worship, you're walking. So you cannot drive a car, you cannot ride a bus, you cannot do any of those things, that is work. And so to actually be part of that conservative community, You've got to be within walking distance of your worship site. Is conservative the same as orthodox? The answer, the quick answer is no, but. It is very similar for our purposes. Um, mm, yes, that's good enough because I was just about to say, I really should explain that more, except I'm going to tell you what, none of them are watching this Bible study. So I don't think I will get any criticisms of that. So, <laughs> and if you are, let me know. Um, okay. Any other questions or thoughts? <laughs> okay. Let's press on. We're going to jump to chapter 17. This is our second section, Water from the Rock. Let's just start right there, chapter 17, verse 1. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for them to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? 
They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you at the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And we'll pause there. Here we go again. The people are thirsty, and they are mad, and they are complaining, and they are railing against Moses. And Moses says, What am I going to do with these people? I love that. What is this? Moses says, What shall I do with this people? That's great. How many times have we been in groups of people, and somebody is doing the same thing again, and we say, what are we going to do with these people? I feel like every parent has felt that way about their child at some point or another. Yes. The Israelites are complaining because they don't have what they want. And in a sense, they're letting their fear get the best of them. In this section, I want us to kind of turn the crystal because this is, it's redundant. It's the same kind of issue again. And so rather than just repeat ourselves, turn that crystal a bit, and this time I want to consider the aspect of fear that seems to be controlling the Israelites. They are out in the wilderness. We've discussed before, this is very much like desert. Think New Mexico or Arizona kind of wilderness. Water is very hard to come by, and even if they come by some water, it's probably not enough, and so they're thirsty. Being hungry is a particular kind of desperation. Being thirsty is different. We can go weeks and weeks and weeks without food. We cannot go long without something to drink. And so the idea of being hungry is annoying and frustrating and it makes you cranky. Being thirsty is actually dangerous and can be fatal. The fear of dying is a real fear for the Israelites. And so here, when they complain again against Moses, that fear is, is truly one that is controlling them. They can't think straight. They can't think back to what has God done for us. When we needed, God provided. That kind of rationality goes out the window when you're actually fearing for your life. Fear is a constant human condition. We know this. In Scripture, Every time an angel appears to a human, first thing they say, do not be afraid. Fear is natural and normal, and it's controlling and consuming, and is likely the number one reason why people are unable to stay connected to God. We in our lives are surrounded by things that should scare us. Part of wrestling with our faith is actually rooting ourselves very deeply in the confidence that fear is not going to win, that we are not at risk, that God is not potentially going to vanish from our presence. You likely know that as a priest, we are with people who are experiencing death or end of life every day. Every day, somebody is nearing the end of their life, has died, has been told they will die, that's every day for us. I can sense 
immediately whether a person or a family is well-formed around death or not. Put another way, I can tell immediately if someone has actually wrestled with and come to a place of confidence around God's presence with them versus allowing the fear of the unknown to control them. And it's almost unfair to even put it that way. But some families, I walk into their situation and they are totally solid. They're sad, but they're solid. And then others completely melt and lose all sense of rationality because what? Is, was death not part of this? I mean, I regularly want think to myself, were we thinking maybe this person wouldn't die? I mean, I, you know, I don't mean to make it a joke, but there is, it is often, off, more often than not, actually, that I walk into situations with families who genuinely almost seem to think that maybe they were going to escape death, and now death is here. And I think, yeah, that's all of us. And I know, I talk to my own children about dying, and that they will die, and that everyone they die. I mean, not to be morbid, but actually to try and push that aside. It's a part of our life. We say in our, in our burial service, death is not the end, it's just the next step in our life. If we actually believe the stuff that we say we believe, then we know there's more. We may not know what that is, how it looks, how it will be, but we've been given this promise by God that this life is not all there is. And I have the hopefulness that it gets better from here. And so, of course, you're sad because you were losing someone you love. Either way, if you are the one, if you're the loved one of a person dying, you're losing a person that you love. If you are the person dying, you are losing all these people that you love. But that's not the end. And it does get better. And so fear and sadness do not go hand in hand all the time. They can actually be different. And in a sense, what we're seeing with the Israelites here is that the fear of the world is controlling their actions with both each other and with God. We can have a very similar experience where the world seems crazy or whatever. And then we say, where is God? How did God let that happen? Why would God have done this? It's not quite the best question. In a crisis, that's not the time to correct theology or faithfulness. So when I walk into a crisis situation where a person may be dying, I don't say to the people, you know what? You should ask a better question. That's not the time. This is actually the time when we're in a moment where we're not in crisis to try and genuinely wrestle with the concept of where is God? How does God treat us? How does God relate to us? What does God provide for us such that we can begin to be molded and morphed in a different way so that when we face what is very hard, and a crisis, and a tragedy, and something very sad, we are not also consumed by and controlled by fear. Once we hit that moment, 
just, you, you almost have to kind of go with whatever you are. Do you know, I have this experience, I'm sure you all have had this too, especially people who suffer from dementia or Alzheimer's, they kind of become more of whoever they were. And so if they were a very happy person, they become a really happy person. And ev everything is great and everything is joyful. And if they were a mean person, they become really mean. And if they were a negative person and a complaining person, it's complaining all the time. I mean, they just sort of become more of whoever they were. And any sort of polite, well-socialized boundaries that they put around themselves sort of fall away. In a sense, we have a chance here in our discipleship to try and mold ourselves more and more at our core to be a certain kind of faithful person so that when we hit that crisis, we're actually on the wave we wish to be on. Because in a crisis, it's now reaction. We're not being thoughtful and rational in a crisis most of the time. But prior to that crisis, we have a chance to actually shape ourselves. And the Israelites, in a sense, have these opportunities. And part of the story here, which is a little, I don't want to say it's hyperbolic, but mm, the storyteller is obviously trying to make a point. And so whether this actually happened quite this way or not, the storyteller is meant to hit us again and again and again with the problem that Israel is going through and I believe the storyteller's goal here is not to make fun of them or to do anything like that, but to actually encourage us to essentially not find ourselves stuck in the same rut, repeating the same problems. You know, what is the definition of frustration? It's approaching, an, uh, approaching something with the same answer and finding the same problem. I mean, it's so frustrating to do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome. And I think the storyteller here is trying to nudge us in a very positive sense to not repeat the same problems like Israel was repeating. Okay. Questions or thoughts? This faith testing is something that has resonated beyond. Now we're going to jump out of Exodus. The idea of having our faith tested is something that has resonated. It continued to resonate with the Jewish people for hundreds and hundreds of years. Early Christians took that same idea and began to incorporate Christ in a very intentional way. We see that very explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so I wanted to kind of close today by looking at the way in which St. Paul took this idea of testing faith and then helped it to evolve in a way that became very much rooted in Christian identity and theology. And so you don't have to worry about it, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, first 13 verses. Here is what Paul writes. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. 
For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters, as some of them did. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. And do not complain, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example, and they were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. Paul writes here in chapter 10, explicitly rooted in the story that we are unpacking in Exodus. For the writers of Exodus, this was not meant to be exposing the ridiculousness of Israel, repeating the same problem over and over again, but to actually expose our humanity, that we are tempted to repeat the same problem over and over again. And that in that repetition, find that we are no closer to God than we were in the past. Paul is pointing to the faithfulness of God to actually help us move down the path. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength, but with the testing he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. Interestingly here, what I want to say Paul is not saying is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That is not it. And God is not saying, I mean, Paul is not saying, God will not give you more than you can handle. Listen to what Paul says. He will not let you be tested beyond your strength because with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. What Paul's really getting at here is the way out, our saving, our salvation comes from God. We don't save ourselves. God saves us. We will never experience anything in this world, in this life, that is not something we can overcome and survive and endure with God's help. For us, the real trick of faith is actually finding the humility within us to understand that it is not us that solves these problems. We alone do not endure. We alone do not survive. God walks with us into that mess and into that tragedy and into that crisis, and it is God who brings us out. That's really the promise of Christ, is this promise of saving us from whatever this world can throw at us. Nothing that we experience in this world will overcome the strength and the faithfulness of God. That's why in the resurrection, death itself was defeated. That's the power of Christ 
is that the scariest thing in this world, death itself, is now defeated by God. If we weren't certain before, through Christ we are now very certain that God is with us all the way through, and God will bring us always, always out the other side. That's really all I have for you today. Any questions or thoughts about that? All right, then. I wish you all a very Merry Christmas, and I hope you will come and join us for all of our good stuff, including Epiphany, which comes in January. And know we are out for a few weeks. January 12th, we are back together. I look forward to seeing you then. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.